Right. Good afternoon, um, wherever you may be right now. And welcome to Enfleshed uh, by Watch and Walk uh, Ministry. As we discussed last week, um, Enfleshed is designed to help believers of today to embody um, the word of God. And um, we are so excited to join, I mean, come once again together uh, to dig into the word of God. Last week, um, those who were able to join us, um, we looked at the personality of the word, I mean, the word of God. We looked at John chapter 1 and the fact that um, the word of God is a person. And when you understand that the word of God is a person full of grace and truth, it helps you uh, to approach the word of God um, or scripture with the right attitude. And um, my prayer is that that discussion helped you and it gave you some um, interpretive lens to be able to um, look at the Bible and learn the Bible for yourself. For the next eight weeks, we are going to stay in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to, that's actually part of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, today we're looking at chapter 5, verse 1 um, to 6. Chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 to 6. And um, our prayer is that we are going to look at how applicable this scripture is. And uh, we're also going to look at how we can apply this concept of grace and truth and, um, that we learned last week to this scripture. Um, my name is Ebenezer Dujemfi. Um, I'm a student at Baylor uh, Truett Seminary doing my Master of Divinity. Uh, to help me discuss um, this uh, passage of the Bible um, are Cecily. Um, I have Cecily McWain with me. Uh, Cecily is an MDF student at Truett, and she's also a girls' youth uh, ministry associate at Columbus Avenue Baptist Church. Um, I have Jackson. Jackson Adama is a, a student, actually a PhD um, candidate in theology and ethics. Um, he's doing a, a, PhD, a PhD at um, Duke University, um, North, North Carolina. And I have Eric with me. Eric Amuzu is um, doing his PhD, is about, to start, about to start his PhD in church music at Baylor um, University here in, in Texas. And I have um, the honor of also welcoming a special guest with us today, uh, Dr. Joel C. Gregory. Uh, uh, Dr. Gregory is a preaching, preaching professor at uh, Baylor Truett Seminary, and he's also the holder of George W. Truett Endowed Chair in Preaching and Evangelism. Um, Dr. Gregory is also um, the director of Kai Lake Center for Effective uh, Preaching. And he's also the founder of Gregory Ministries. If you want to find out more about um, uh, this distinguished person amongst us, you can go to gregoryministries.org to get more about him. So Dr. Gregory, uh, welcome um, to Enfleshed. I think um, Dr. Gregory's um, audio is still not on, um, but we are we are hoping that he will, can join us with the audio and video very soon. Hello. Yeah. yeah we we can okay. hear you now. We good. That's all right. Happy. Thank you. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So so welcome to Enfleshed um, Bible Study by Watch and Walk, and um, today as I said we are looking at Matthew chapter five, verse one to six. Um, before we start, let me pray for us and. Um, Cecily can start uh, with a reading. 
In Jesus' name, we thank you for this time. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to study your word. Our prayer is that, Father, you open our eyes to see great things in your word and help us to apply this um, into our lives in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, Cecily, uh, you can go ahead, read Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Wonderful. Yes, Matthew 5. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. It's the word of the Lord. Thank you um, for your reading. Well, um, I'd like to start with Dr. Gregory. Um, now, I want us to just look at the, you know, the context. I'm looking at in the beginning of this passage and what you know about the Sermon on the Mount. I want to find out what is the context and what is the purpose of this Sermon on the Mount. Um, want to you know, help all of us and those who are listening to get to understand how applicable, who was, who was it addressed to, who is it addressed to right now, and uh, how we can um, read that now. Yeah. Well, thank you. First, it's uh, good to join with you this way by Bible study. Uh, these are unusual days in this present distress. It's the word Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 7, present distress. Uh, Ebenezer said you're considering the Sermon on the Mount, which, as you know, has some parallels or near parallels in Luke's uh, Sermon on the Plain, uh, which, let me say at the outset, that doesn't bother me. Any of those of us who are itinerant preachers uh, know that uh, sermons delivered at different occasions in different places may have some similar material. Uh, Jesus found himself in different venues and oftentimes, I think more than once, saying similar things. Uh, when you have the setting in Matthew's Gospel, of course, you begin with the infancy narratives, which dominate chapters 1 and 2. Tell us about the infancy from the viewpoint of Joseph, just as Luke does, from the viewpoint of Mary. But then you're off to, uh, off to the baptism, uh, the temptations, and then this manifesto. I like the word that uh, Campbell Morgan has used sometimes, a manifesto. Um, we often think of that in terms of, of Karl Marx and his <laughs> manifesto. This is Jesus' manifesto. It's his agenda. Now, I, I should say, and we don't have time to do with this, there are literally a dozen different hermeneutics uh, for the Sermon on the Mount. Um, one in this neck of the woods here regionally that may be strange to some of you is the dispensationalist view that Jesus offered this kingdom living uh, to the Jewish people. They rejected his claim. So it has been postponed until the millennium at the end of history. Uh, and uh, that view in this region of the country, because of a good deal of uh, Baptist fundamentalism uh, and the influence of J.N. Darby of the Plymouth Brethren uh, in England on this, and, uh, this is waning, but it has been the idea. This is a postponed view, really isn't relevant today. Uh, 
Now, you have what I would call the rigorist view, and that is uh, a Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who in the cost of discipleship uh, presents this as a, I would call it, I use the terms, an achievable ethic. <laughs> uh, that we might say in uh, Texas idiom, uh, Jesus wasn't kidding around. He says, I want you to take this seriously. This is how kingdom people live. Then you have what I would call more of a, a Lutheran and sometimes a Reformed view. And that is, this is a kind of neo, neo-nomism, a new law, that even more so than the old law shows us our need for grace. Uh, here is this mountainous expectation. As Paul uses it, it's a pedagogue uh, to, lead us to, uh, to lead us to Christ. Then you have the kingdom view of someone like Joachim Jeremias of the University of Göttingen, that we're living between, to use his and Oscar Kuhlmann's language, between the already and the not yet. Uh, an inaugurated kingdom that is not consummated. And we live in the tension of that. The great uh, Southern Baptist ethicist of an entirely different era, he's been gone for decades, was Dr. T.B. Maston. He held a degree from Southwestern and Ph.D. from Yale, two, two, two doctors. He was in many ways the founder of the discipline of ethics uh, uh, in the 20th century to the degree that Baptists were studying uh, uh, ethics. He always used an interesting metaphor to me, and I, I'd like to put this out there. Um, if I could find one, I thought I had one, but he used the metaphor of a rubber band. And he says, here is the Sermon on the Mount. It's like a nail in the wall. Our lives are connected to that by a rubber band. Uh, we're never going to achieve it in this mortal world, but it is always a tension, like a rubber band anchored to a nail, pulling us, mm. keeping us in this tension. Mm. It's one of the best metaphors I ever heard, realistically, for the Sermon on the Mount. Sometime when I was in the pastor trying to win people to Christ, I remember a man really blithely, shallowly said, well, I live by the Sermon on the Mount. And I always want to say, well, have you ever read that? If you think you achieve it, uh, it keeps us in attention. Yes, this is Jesus' ideal, like a rubber band anchored to it. Uh, but it also, I think, must drive us to grace. I don't know when you want me to comment on the Beatitudes, but I do think they recognize that in the very order of the Beatitudes. Okay. Hmm. Thank you very much uh, for that um, explication. Um, so it's achievable. I like that analogy of the rubber band. So it's achievable, but uh, it's like, it's not like you cannot achieve it, but then God pulls you, you know, yes, that's, that's, that's awesome. Well, um, Cecily, um, now let's look at the first one. It talks about the poor in spirit and, um, what does that mean? And, uh, why does the kingdom of God belong to these ones? Well, I, Ebenezer, you've heard me use this term before in class. I'm really attached to the idea of world weariness. Mm. That sometimes in our life, we, we encounter these, these phases of a world 
weariness. And to me, these people poor in spirit, I think are people who are no stranger to, um, I think I've, I've read in a commentary before, a long-standing political and social distress. And so, especially in, in times such as these, we have experienced hearing the stories of um, black communities in America who are sharing stories of long, <laughs> long suffering, long distress, poor in, in spirit, though courageous in, in, in many ways. And so it's been so humbling to have very real world examples uh, in a time of sickness and a time of, of death, you know, with COVID-19, even when we're not losing, when we're losing people, not to COVID-19, but just burying our, our loved ones is a strange experience now. We can't show up to funerals or funeral homes in the numbers we typically would. And so in that way, there's a, a poorness in spirit and that my heart is, my heart is hurting and, and burdened by um, whether it's something physically wrong with me personally or my community or this kind of over, overwhelming social distress or, or anxiety. And so that, that idea of world weariness has, has lasted with me. And, and particularly in Matthew, Matthew is always bringing us back to the Old Testament. And so I think of the Psalms where we, we hear about in God, we have a place of, of refuge, of shelter. These people, these people poor in spirit, know what it means to come to God and find God a refuge for, for them. Awesome. Jack, can you comment on that? Yeah, so um, thank, thank you so much uh, for, for that comment, Cecily and Dr. Gregory as well. Um, so before like attempting to define what it means uh, to be poor in spirit, I think we need to underscore the fact that uh, Genesis chapter 1 verse 22 marks our first introduction to the word blessed. Yeah. Um, so scripture says, after God created living things, God blessed them. Yeah. But God pronounced the verdict that they reflect his goodness before he blessed them. Consequently, uh, blessedness describes the state in which God's goodness and favor meets his creatures. Uh, the state of blessedness is therefore not passive, but an active flowing out of God's goodness uh, to his creatures. Yeah. Um, having said that, to be poor in spirit is to literally be spiritually impoverished. Yeah. Uh, who were the people typically construed as spiritually impoverished in Jesus' day? Uh, and I can come up with a, a number of examples. Firstly, in Jesus' day, uh, the spiritually impoverished were marked by their ethnicity. Um, so you have the Samaritans and the Gentiles. They were high on the list of the spiritually impoverished. Um, secondly, you have uh, people uh, sp to be spiritually impoverished uh, was, a, was a distinction. Like it was a mark. Oh, it was characteristic of people who were marked to be um, economic outsiders, the poor. Uh, they were deemed to be spiritually bankrupt in a society that took for granted the fact that the wealth, that wealth was a principal indicator of God's favor. Uh, that is why uh, the parallel construction of uh, Luke, Mark 3, chapter 5 is found in Luke chapter 6, verse 20, where it says, Blessed are you poor for yours is the kingdom of God. So Luke removes the word 
spirit, but he says that blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Um, so material gain was equated with sound spirituality in Jesus's day, as I said. Um, and thirdly, the spiritually impoverished were the morally bankrupt as well. So you have people like the tax collectors. Uh, they were seen as outsiders. And you, fourthly, you also have the disabled. Uh, they were deemed to be spiritually impoverished because of the widespread belief that sin attracted physical ailments. I think in John chapter 9, we come across something like that when Jesus met, uh, Jesus and the disciples met a blind man and they said, oh, whose fault is it? This blindness, where does this blindness come from? Is it the sins of the, the man's parents or, or the man himself? And finally, women and slaves were regarded as spiritually impoverished in comparison to the men and the slave masters. In the case of the former, this explains why men were mostly entrusted with religious leadership. Uh, consequently, by blessing the poor in spirit, Jesus tacitly subverts or overturns the dominant ways the world organizes and values people. Yeah. Why did Jesus bless the spiritually impoverished with the kingdom of God? To my mind, the spiritually impoverished have a disposition to be open and receptive to the news and demands of God's kingdom. Yeah. Mary said in Luke chapter 1, verse 53, that God has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Yeah. As uh, Stanley Howard of Duke uh, usually says, to be poor does not in itself make one a follower of Jesus, but it can put you in the vicinity of what it means to discover the kind of poverty yeah. that frees those who follow Jesus from enslavement to the world. Wow. Time and time and again, we learn that the spiritually fattened religious leaders rejected Christ's announcement of the kingdom, but the kingdom was born in the hearts of women, the poor, the sick, and the tax collectors, uh, the Samaritans, and the Gentiles. So that's my take on what All it means right. to be poor in spirit. Wow. Thanks a lot uh, for that. A scripture that comes to mind, um, in, in, especially in terms of application, um, is this Isaiah 66, uh, verse 2, where God says that these, the people I regard or I look on are uh, the ones who are poor and contrite at heart, uh, mm -hmm. contrite at heart, and yes. um, the one who trembles at my word. This is the person I will regard. So, I mean, when you look at poverty and all these things, I mean, those who are thinking, how can I show that I'm really poor in spirit. I mean, tremble at God's word, uh, fear the word of God, and then, you know, walk in the wisdom and attain the wisdom of God. That is one way that you can actually ex exhibit this poverty in the spirit. Uh, thanks, thanks a lot, uh, Jack and Cecily, for that. Before I come to Dr. Gregory again, Eric, um, help us understand those who mourn and how are they going to be comforted? Okay, thank you. Um, just like Jackson said, um, Blessed usually means, you know, something related to happiness in the Bible. And uh, by in the context of Matthew chapter 5, um, blessed most likely indicates a desirable state, you know, something somebody would desire. Uh, when somebody acquires good fortune, what do we do? We call the person blessed, right? So this scripture suggests something much more different. Jesus is calling some people blessed who appear to be quite the opposite. Mm, yeah. How can somebody who is mourning be blessed or even happy? As we all know, people who mourn normally look sad. Mm -hmm. In our world, no one tells a sad person, you know, that, see, you know what? It is a blessing for you to be sad. 
in this scripture, I think Jesus is contrasting the world's idea of happiness with true blessedness, you know, some kind of spiritual blessedness, which comes from a right, you know, standing or relationship or living with God. And, you know, I would, I also, you know, when I was going through this, another thing I realized was that, you know, the term mourn means to experience deep grief. Mm. And so by sticking with his theme of like true blessedness, um, Jesus seems to indicate that this mourning is due to grief over sin. Mm. The people who agree with God about the evil of their own hearts can attain an kind of like an enviable state of blessedness mm. due to the, the comfort they receive from uh, the communion with the Holy Spirit. Mm. So as we all know, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the comforter in the Bible. Mm. So the same way the Spirit comforts those who are honest about their own sin and humbled enough to ask for forgiveness and healing. Mm. In contrast, those who hide their sin or try to justify it before God can never know the comfort that comes from a pure heart. Mm. as jesus talks about in matthew chapter 5 verse 8 if you read on so in like to, to summarize i would say that jesus reminds his disciples that they cannot seek happiness the way the world sees it or the world does it so true joy is not found in selfish ambitions or excuses or self-justification mm. uh, an enviable state of blessedness will come to those who mourn over their own sin okay you see when we agree with god about how bad our sin is then repent of it, mm. you know, and seek his power to walk away from it, then Jesus promises comfort for the, from the Holy Spirit. So this kind of mourning that leads to repentance is truly comforting in a blessed way. Mm. So repentance results in forgiveness and cleansing uh, of sins from God. Yeah, something very, very important that I would like to end with. So those who learn to mourn over their own sin find the heart of God. Okay. And I must say that the intimate fellowship with God is the very foundation of true happiness. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, now, what you said brought to mind um, this scripture, Paul wrote letter to the Corinthians, Second uh, Corinthians chapter 7, when they were made sorrowful. I mean, they were made as sad because of that letter. And then he said that, I mean, I rejoice that that, that sorrow lead, led to repentance. And, you know, and he talked about godly sorrow, and he opposes it or contra I mean, contrasts that, that with, with worldly sorrow. And he said that a godly sorrow leads to repentance and it leaves no regret. But worldly right. sorrow, the sorrow, the sorrow of the world, leads to death. And so even in this moment, I mean, you talk about sin, where people are um, sorrowful, people are sad about the situation of the world right now. I want to always ask that question, what kind of sorrow are you experiencing? Is it a sorrow that will lead you closer to God? Or that kind of sorrow that you look at what is happening in the world and it's like driving you away from God. So like you are, it's actually leading you to death. That if you don't take um, care, that kind of sorrow that we are going through within this pandemic will not draw you closer to God. And then that also uh, linked up with that issue of sin. So that, that is one thing I want to just add. And Dr. Gregory, I want you just, uh, I'd like to, uh, you to just share your um, views on that. And most uh, specifically about the verse 5. Where is it that blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth? What is the Bible saying there? Your, your audio is off, sir. <laughs> One of the challenges in the English word meek mm -hmm. uh, is the assonance or the rhyming quality of that word with the English word weak. 
when we say he is a meek little man, hmm. I think the overwhelming majority of people immediately hear that euphoniously, euphony, as if he's a we. Now, the word prouted us, and this has been used, it's been overused. But I think it's a good example. You probably all heard it. Uh, it was, I think, Herodotus who used this of a racehorse. You know, this is, can't be overstated, but it can't be understated. Mm. The idea was power under submission. Mm. Uh, you know, you take a huge horse, like one of the largest racehorses in America was Brooklyn Supreme. Mm. Weighed nearly 2,000 pounds. Horse weighed nearly a ton. Taller than a man's head. And yet that horse was directed by a three-pound bit in its mouth. And, and I think that kind of image helps us as an analogy, a rough analogy, but as an analogy. Um, it seems to suggest uh, uh, that which has come under submission, not weakness, but that which is under submission. Now, if you look at the first three Beatitudes, I acknowledge my spiritual bankruptcy. It's the very opposite of the Pharisee in Luke's parable in Luke 18. Oh, Lord, look at me. I'm glad I'm not like that. Publican. It's, it's a laundry list before God of my own achievements. It's the exact opposite of that. It's acknowledging I am spiritually bankrupt. And I think someone mentioned the word tachas in Greek means actually not just poor, but cringingly. Mm. Poor. I'm I'm overdrawn. I have insufficient funds. I have you put it. I'm I'm broke spiritually. Um, that leads me then to uh, to sorrow, to grief, if I react to it. Mm -hmm. But if that's all that happens, I could go into despair. Soren Kierkegaard wrote a little book called "The Sickness Unto Death" in his Christian Anthropology. And he said, the one sickness unto death is despair. <laughs> so if all I do is acknowledge I'm bankrupt, I mourn over it, it could leave me with what he, S.K. said was a, was a mortal sickness. To me, this is almost uh, Hegelian. You have thesis, <laughs> antithesis, synthesis. The synthesis of this is I come under submission. I live a life of submission and agreement with what God says about me, mm. uh, which is double-edged. God says, yes, Gregory, you are a sinner to the core. And it's not just that you do stuff that's wrong. Mm. I sometimes use the image of a, of a concave convex mirror at a carnival. If you ever stand in front of one, mm. it, 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 you're completely warped, or a picture on the wall. That's it's not just that a piece of the picture is is uh, the whole picture is is tilted. And when I agree with what God says about me, and in the cross, I come under submission to what He says about me. That's my only hmm. that's my only relief. And I, I might say this too. This is. Um, I think the angst of our friends mm. 
many of them consecrated believers, say in the Roman system, for whom salvation is always this unusual mix, this synergism, this synergism of grace and work. <laughs> and it always leaves you with angst. And Luther was right. Meekness means I'm going to submit to what God says about me. Mm. <laughs> and I'm going to lose that angst. I'm agreeing with it. Mm. And I'm looking only to his to his his grace. Let me say one other thing and I'll I'll get quiet. Sometimes people look at these beatitudes as if they're a smorgasbord. Well, I'll take a little poverty of spirit. I don't feel too well, but I don't weep today. Maybe a little meekness. You know, a, a dash of righteousness, kind of like oregano or rosemary today. But this thing of, uh, you know, being a peacemaker, I don't feel that way. Mm. I think that's to misinterpret this. It's not a smorgasbord. Um, but somebody said that's like throwing pieces of a, of a steel-clad ship into the ocean. If I rip off part of the bulkhead and throw it in the ocean, it sinks. Mm. <laughs> Uh, well, any one of these would sink by itself. Mm. It, this is a picture, in a sense, a full-length portrait. Mm. And when you see it in its robustness, and its full-length character, what you have is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ mm. uh, uh, in, in his life, his person, and his work. And incidentally, let me say this, and I will stop. If you read the book that I believe was by his younger half-brother, James, first pastor of the Jerusalem Church and Christian martyr who grew up in that Nazarene home watching Jesus. It couldn't have been easy. How would you like to always be told, why can't you be more like your older brother? And that's Jesus. You know? But he grew up in that home. You see in James 5 chapter, the echo of everyone of these in practical Christian living. I always challenge people, read the Beatitudes, read James, mm. and you'll find echoed in James. Mm. Every one of these. Yeah, yeah. Enough yeah. said, I could go yeah. on, but that's enough. Thanks, thanks a lot. Uh, that's, that's really packed. Um, God bless you so much for that. Uh, when you were talking about the pieces, uh, the idea or the image that I got was the fruit of the spirit, which is actually a singular word. Um, mm. It's not fruits, but the fruit of the spirit, as opposed to, you know, uh, the works of the flesh. Uh, uh, the fact that as you are building all these things, you are actually being conformed to the image of Christ. So Christ is the image. You are looking unto him, the author and finisher of your faith. And as I said in James, that becomes your perfect law of liberty. And as you look into yes. that, you are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Uh, that, that is, that is a, a powerful analogy there. So God bless you once again. So now, as I said, do you have any um, example, illustration, or any comment on that meek person inheriting there? Right, yeah. You know, I was thinking a lot about that this week. And Dr. Greger, you helping us understand the, the meek person who, who is the person who's kind of put all of this together and has mm -hmm. submitted. Uh, themselves to to what God says about us and I was thinking a lot about Dr. Robert Creech our beloved um, Dr. Creech at, at Truett 
has really ruined me in the way of Wendell Berry. And so I was immediately thinking about um, these farmers, how important our farmers are for us. And then even thinking of the, uh, the shepherds in the Christmas story, who then are a part of this climactic event, the heralding of, of the Advent. How even for us, our farmers are so underappreciated in, in most of our societies around the world, yet we rely so heavily on them. And uh, again, my, my kind of big gospel analogy is about getting back to the garden. That is so close to my heart. How do we get back to the garden? And so I was thinking of these, these farmers and what might it mean for the meek to inherit the earth. You know, the farmer is, in a sense, this meek person who has understood what it means to live on the land and to work it, to work, I mean, day after day to see God's creation and, and the responsibility. Like, that's the beauty of the gospel, right? That we participate in the kingdom of God. It's not just an eschatological hope. It is that, but also something we live today. And so this, the farmer understands what it means to come back to the land uh, that God has created good and, and to participate in what God is doing. And then the great hope that then I, I'm a part of this, this story and I'm a part of this land. I'm a part of what God is doing and to inherit it in the new earth where I always think of C.S. Lewis, the last battle, right? And we see the unicorn jewel finally comes in to the, the new earth and says, oh, I think the reason we liked the old Narnia so much is because it reminds us of this, of this place, this new earth of heaven. And so um, for me, that's what, that's what I think about with the meek wow. inheriting the, the earth is, is, is like the farmer who, who now I, and it's not contingent on, I'm, I'm not a great farmer, but I'm a part of God's family. And so therefore I get to be a part of this land and this work uh, today and, and every day in the future. Oh, awesome. You know, one thing I like, and I agree with that, that there is something, I, all my relatives were farmers. <laughs> I'm from farm families on either side. I'm the first person in the family history of my family to go to a university, no less get a terminal <laughs> degree. I'm one generation, literally, <laughs> away from uh, people who, well, my father plowed with an animal. <laughs> my father, who was born in 1911, uh, plowed with a mule, uh, pulling a plow. So I'm not that far from this proximity <laughs> of absolute dependence. One thing in farming, is a sense of dependence. Yeah. But I'd also say this about meekness, and I know this is trite, it's been observed before, but I do think there's something to it about meek inheriting the earth. Right now, the meek enjoy the earth they have more than the arrogant are the people with hubris. Mm. They really do. <laughs> uh, up until Bill Gates or Warren Buffett, the richest man in American history, maybe world history, was John D. Rockefeller Sr., the founder of Standard Oil, who professed to be a Baptist of a sort. His business practices were insulated from, uh, <laughs> from that profession. But I think about him, controlled 90% of the petroleum in the world. But, in getting there, he had so ruined his digestion hmm. that he could only eat uh, what we would call gruel or oatmeal. Hmm. 
of the stressor that give him a condition called Asclepia, in which uh, he had the stressful loss of his hair. I don't say that to celebrate his pain, but I do say this, here was the richest man in the world who lived literally at his estate with doctors living with him, real doctors and quacks, lived with him. He had a goal of reaching 100. That was an obsession. He wanted to be 100. He lived to be 99. The <laughs> richest man in the world, with doctors living with him, couldn't add another year. And I say that. The meek, in my experience, enjoy the earth they have mm. more than the empowered. Mm. Now, that's not saying the powers ought to make them weak, but it is saying <laughs> that in my, even in my pastoral observation, mm. uh, uh, I pastored for a couple of years, a church that had been pastored for 50 years by a man, he was wealthy, the church was wealthy. And I asked him, I said, doctor, what one thing have you learned in 50 years? And I'll never forget sitting in his study till late in the day. And he said, I have learned that great wealth brings great misery. And uh, I, know, I know some people say, well, I'd sure like to try to be that miserable for a while, but, but that has been an observation. Hmm. If you're familiar with Tolstoy's little short story, uh, All the Land a Man Needs, if you're not familiar with that, it's right at the heart of what we're talking about. Hmm. This Russian peasant began to get more land and then more and more. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> uh, some wise tribal people conveyed to him what was really, they knew the outcome would be. They said, if you'll give us what you have, you can have all the land you will run around in one day. And in this remarkable story, the man runs, he sprints, but by midday he recognizes he's marked out too much to get back. So obsessed, he runs more and faster, and he drops dead right before he gets to the finish line. He had to get back to the finish line to get it. <laughs> and a member of the tribe said wryly, well, He's going to be buried, and that's all the land he will need. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And, and uh, yeah. I've seen that, and I don't mean to give overly illustrate this, mm -hmm. but I do think there's some analogies in this. Mm -hmm. Those who are happy, mm -hmm. in a sense, content, like Paul said in Philippians 4, whatever state they're in, they're with to be mm -hmm. content, mm -hmm. are often the meek. Mm -hmm. Uh, covetousness, covetousness is wanting more and more of what you already have enough of. Mm. That's like the man who wanted bigger barns. <laughs> Luke's great parable. No barn was going to be big enough. Mm. And uh, mm. anyway, I'll stop. But meekness, yeah. I think, is not just eschatological in its promise, although I think it is. Mm -hmm. It is. We're, we're going to have a new heaven and a new earth. Mm -hmm. Irenaeus, the Bishop of Lyon, whose church underwent persecution in Against Heresies, Book 5, says they who suffered here must 
reign here. Mm. There's going to be a new heaven mm. and a new earth. There is a sense it's eschatology. I think the meek enjoy what they have more now. Mm. Thank you very much uh, for that. So, Jack, um, the last verse we're looking at uh, for today, verse 6, those who thirst, who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and how would they be filled? So let's quickly, you and then uh, Eric, deal with that, and then we look at, we've got a question here from one of our viewers, so I'll look at that after that. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Thank you uh, for these wonderful contributions. Um, so um, when we look at uh, the words uh, Christ used, like, uh, hungering and thirsting. So hunger and thirst are two basic human needs. Um, obviously, no human life can flourish without food and water. Consequently, by connecting the urgent conditions of hunger and thirst to the pursuit of righteousness, Christ suggests righteousness is fundamental to human flourishing. But what is righteousness? And, and the word righteousness is a translation of the Greek word the Kayosune, mm -hmm. uh, which gives the sense of right, right standing with God. Mm -hmm. And that same word can be also be translated as justice. Uh, most Protestant Christians are familiar with the former, that is the idea of righteousness as right standing with God. We sing and confess the fact that through Christ, through faith in Christ, we have been forgiven and received the imputation of God's righteousness. This is arguably the most common understanding and application of righteousness among uh, Protestant Christians. But like I said, Kaiosuni can also be translated as justice. Um, justice is the practice of giving to each person what he or she deserves. It is the practice of justice that inspired the early Christians to invent the idea of the hospital yeah. at a time when the sick were seen as dispensable in society. Yeah. The idea of a hospital developed out of the Judeo-Christian conviction that human life is precious to God. Mm. And historically, Christians also invented the idea of orphanages and the human rights charter that we now know. They all came out of the uh, Christian theological uh, heritage. Mm. In the context of this verse, we can highlight food and water as two basic as the two as two of the basic needs of humanity in other words all living humans deserve good food and water however when we look at the world today we we see the opposite mm -hmm. according to global food distribution statistics 821 million people do not have uh, enough food uh, and one in nine people go to bed hungry um, and that's what we are dealing with and so the question Jesus is posing to us is, are we hungering and thirsting for justice? Mm. Um, and when we look at the world, are we hungering and thirsting for justice? Are we hungry for equity um, and justice in our day? So if we limit righteousness to only right standing with God, we run the risk of privatizing mm. and interiorizing the reality of God's kingdom. Mm. Um, and this was the charge Christ laid at the doorstep of the religious leaders of his day who cared more about the rituals of worship mm. than the welfare of the poor and the marginalized. Mm. Also, if we limit righteousness to only the practice of socioeconomic and political justice, we run the risk of bringing about the kingdom of God through human and effort and zeal without God's transforming and renewing grace of human hearts and minds. Mm. Without the transforming grace of God, we will resort to the use of violence to get justice. Mm. 
This was a problem Jesus also had with the zealots in his day. Mm. Uh, Consequently, we must keep the two senses of righteousness together. Mm. It is in so doing that we can be filled spiritually and physically. So that's what I I want to say. I mean, very good example of what you said. I mean, right now in our world, even in the U.S. right now, seeking for justice and some people who were looting and uh, destroying things in the name of justice. And that is, that is one thing that we need to really take note of. Um, Eric, uh, your, your thoughts on that? I think justice made, um, if, I, I mean, I think uh, he, he made a full, yeah. um, um, he, he's almost talked about everything, but I'll touch on a few things. Um, when Jesus talks about, you know, those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, um, I want to highlight, you know, in the passage, the approach which he used to deliver, you know, um, the message to the people. It was quite fascinating. Let's not forget that um, these are people who share the same common history with Jesus. You know, they know Old Testament history. They understand what it means to be oppressed and downtrodden. Jesus knows this. So he uses a language and narrative that is familiar to them. And of course, they were living under the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire. So they were experiencing excessive, you know, taxation, uh, denied freedoms and persecution. So in this case, Jesus is saying to them that the freedom and blessings you so much desire uh, can be found in the hunger and thirst for righteousness. Um, So like blessed as used by Jesus in this scripture signifies deep joy-filled contentment Mm -hmm. and an inner state of spiritual well-being. So to hunger and thirst for righteousness is to possess an active spiritual longing. Mm. Just as David says in, you know, Psalm 42 verse 2 that he said, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet him or where can I go and find him with Mm. God? So this desire is not passive. Mm. It is a fervent seeking. Uh, So a servant who hungers and thirsts for righteousness is the same as the one who seeks God's kingdom Mm. and his righteousness before and above everything else, just like Matthew chapter 6, 33 says. So this servant is blessed because he or she experiences mm. a satisfied heart. In other words, this servant can confidently say that, like all of you know, it is well with my soul. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Um, so from what you said, I mean, it's intentional. It's active. Uh, God said that you seek me and find me if you seek me with all your heart. All right. And, um, you know, in the Lord's Prayer, uh, that kingdom come, that will be done on earth. So if you are seeking after justice and righteousness, as I said, we've married a, a two concepts that Jackson talked about. It means that we are actively working to make sure that the pervasive will of God, I mean, the will of God actually pervades everywhere we go and where, wherever we find ourselves, that God's nature, his character is revealed in our works and in our um, words as well. And that, that is something about yeah. so, uh, Before you add your comment, um, there is one uh, question that was directed to Jackson, and I'll come back to you because I wanted to uh, maybe round up with something. So uh, before Dr. Gregory comes in, Jackson, somebody was asking you that you made a comment in the beginning about the uh, impoverishedness, and, and you said that can the state of being spiritually impoverished be likened to a form of loneliness that would attract God's elevation? Is that mm. what you're trying to say? A person, that's a question a person wants to ask you. I know it's a difficult question. <laughs> yeah, I think we didn't, the, the limited time we have. Yeah, um, yeah, I think, yes, uh, the state of being uh, spiritually impoverished is also like alludes to the, the 
the disposition or receptivity. And the thing is that I always go back to even how we receive the communion. We receive it with empty hands. Um, and it, in a sense, like coming with that empty hands is what qualifies us to participate in God's uh, activity. Or whether it means personal elevation, that, that is, uh, it depends on what the situation is. But being open to receive what God has for you is, is so important. And that's, the, I think, the disposition that Jesus is alluding to. Yeah. So um, I would let uh, Dr. Gregory end with a concluding uh, point. But then um, the, your comment and also this idea of the relevance of all that we have talked about, this passage, uh, how does it speak to the condition of the world today? Uh, what, what do you see? What kind of encouragement do we get uh, from, from this? I mean, in this time of uh, pandemic and, you know, all sort of injustice. Uh, well, that's... Uh... That's a large order. One, one thing that I'd like to underscore about justice and kind of getting our arms around this is uh, downtown where I'm sitting in McLennan County, Central Texas, is, uh, on top of the courthouse, as in many American counties, is Lady Justice holding a pan balance. In fact, she's just been renewed up there. Mm as on a blindfold, holding a pen balance. Now, I understand the idea behind that was that justice is blind, meaning that it's, it's not tilted toward those of privilege and so forth. If you look, though, at the biblical concept, whether it's Hebrew, Mishpah, the Kaosene, it really rips, rips the blindfold off. Mm gets her off the courthouse and down in the streets making things right. Mm. And I don't think we can make that righteousness a, a passive virtue. Mm. You know, our world today, let me say this about the world situation. Here's my view of it. I, I preached about this for church Wednesday night. I wrote about it on my Facebook tagged uh, whirlwind. Uh, I think the situation we're encountering is what scripture means by the wrath of God. The wrath of God doesn't mean God is some old guy up there frothing at the mouth angry. Theologians talk about the passivity of God, God in himself. I think it does mean that we're experiencing what happens when God, in a sense, lets go of the ropes. Hmm. He gave them over. Let's, them, let's things take their own course. <laughs> now, I don't mean that to be a counsel of despair, but I, I do see that. God says, you want to build a society without me, a culture without me? Hmm. Uh, uh, you want a rationalistic, empirical, a materialistic world uh, with no guarantor of values? I hmm. mean, I mean, who has the right to say anybody ought to act unless there's a guarantor of oughtness? <laughs> mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, so God is saying, well, in this relativistic situation, I'm going to let go of the ropes. Mm -hmm. And I think that's to experience divine wrath. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I truly see things that way. When, when he lets go of the ropes, it's kind of unleashing the furies. Hmm. Uh, that doesn't mean he causes everything that happens. Hmm. But when he lets go of the ropes and lets things drift, things happen like we're seeing. Now, I've noted this, though, in thinking about that. Will you sow the wind and reap the whirlwind? Hmm. Uh, God spoke to Job out of the whirlwind, Job 38.1. Out of the whirlwind, God spoke. Uh, My hope is that in some fresh way, given the present distress of this, it really is a trifecta. It's three things that no one would have expected in January. Hmm. A pandemic. But that caused people to be trapped in their houses where they have watched over and over Mm. what happened to George Floyd with (laughs) an attention they would have never given it Mm. without being incarcerated in their own houses. (laughs) (laughs) And then added to that, the economic dislocation that caused an 1800 point drop in the Dow, which is depression kind of stuff. You have this trifecta, pandemic, George Floyd, economic dislocation. I cannot but believe that this is not an accident, Hmm. that this is not just randomness, uh, that something is prearranged by providence Hmm. uh, to get our attention. And that's not a counsel of despair. Hmm. Uh, You know, the Christian Mark, 1 Peter says, those that are the born again from above, Peter says, have about them a living hope. Mm. And we must not become, as believers, people just of despair. We may lament, we may weep, but a mark of spiritual birth is also a living hope. Mm. So I'd like to leave you with that word. Uh, mm. I am due uh, in another meeting in a moment. I'm honored to share this time with you and with my graduate assistant, All right. Ebenezer. <laughs> who also helped me learn how to teach online. <laughs> now, when I taught online, I want you all to know I had to have some props, like like this, you know, <laughs> blessed. Awesome. Are you? Hello. Yeah, I've learned to use some props. <laughs> okay. Oh, bless you. greatly amusing to my students. Okay. Keep on you. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs> God bless you. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. So uh, before I, 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 I let us pray and end this, I think uh, Dr. Gregory has said a lot. Eric, I mean, everybody has said a lot. And then uh, for those who are watching, I believe this is very informative and instructive for a time for all of us and very encouraging to all of us as well. And um, one thing that I would like us to end with, with this, is with this thought that um, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, 29, that take my yoke upon you and learn from me, uh, for I am lowly and gentle in heart, you know, and you find rest for your souls. And one thing that we've been learning, I mean, throughout this um, about an hour now, is that idea that these are things that look very high, very, I mean, quite unattainable, but God kind of pulls us towards himself through that. You know, and for somebody who is thinking about these, you know, how can I be, 
uh, hungry and thirsty after righteousness? How can I uh, be poor in spirit? How can I really be meek and all these? Like, these look, look like unachievable. My, 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 my encouragement to you is that the yoke is not yours, it's Jesus. Amen. So the yoke is not yours. So the idea, I mean, when I looked up this definition of the yoke uh, from a website, it talks about a wooden frame by which two draft animals, like oxen, they are joined at the heads you know, for working together. So without one, one cannot work. And without Jesus, you cannot really achieve or even embody what other, other we are talking about. So be encouraged. Um, that's my prayer. And uh, my, my hope is that as you lean on Christ, as you invite him, if you don't know, you invite him into your life, as you continue to pray for the infilling of the Holy Spirit, for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, you, sh- you will be able to walk um, even in the fullness of, of this um, scripture and then be able to walk um, even to please the Lord uh, by just embodying some of these teachings. And my prayer is that you'll be able to uh, de- demonstrate the, the fruit of the Spirit even as you do that. I'll ask um, Cecily to pray with us um, before uh, we go. Wonderful. Pray with me. God, creator of heaven and earth, how good it is to to be called by your name, to be welcomed into your family. I thank you for the, the Christians who have come before us, who have faithfully lived out your word. We're so thankful for the cloud of witnesses. God, thank you that um, even though we have little to give, that you have welcomed us into the kingdom. And so we have work to do. Help us to, to do that boldly and faithfully, to follow you and love you with our thoughts, words, and actions. Your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you. Um, for those who were watching, I, there were some questions I couldn't read. I'm very sorry. And um, today uh, we're, uh, we're still happy for time. But next week, we'll, we'll just improve upon that, get more of your comments and your, your questions. This is where we bring uh, to an end uh, another episode of Enfleshed by Watch and Walk. And uh, my prayer is that next week, same time, 12 p.m., you join us. If you are in Ghana, it's 5 p.m. Um, it's universal time. It's actually 5 p.m. or 17 hour GMT. And our prayer is that you, as you continue to learn with us, uh, you will learn to embody, you will learn to uh, enflesh the teachings of Christ. And then God will help you to be able to demonstrate um, his character wherever you find yourself. Until we meet again, prepare your heart uh, to embody the values of God's kingdom. Bye-bye.